These parables are about finding treasure. And I got thinking, where do I look for treasure? I'm not one of those people that gets a metal detector and walks down the beach all day. Right, you know there's those sort of treasure hunters. When it comes to me, the treasure I love more than anything else is hunting through, you probably can guess, hunting through old secondhand bookstores. The more disorganized, the better. When stuff is in chaotic piles all over the place, if I have the time, I can just sift through one pile after another and find treasures that people who are too lazy to sort through them don't find. I've been doing this for a long time. Um, a good chunk of my library was purchased on OSAP, um, which probably wasn't wise, but it's paid off now, which is good. There was this, there's this bookstore in Peterborough called Mark Jokinen's, and it used to be on Water Street, now it's on George a little further down, and I went there in Bible College all the time because there were so many treasures. And it was there that I found, I want to show you this. You remember the movie, The Never-Ending Story? Okay, the never, (laughs) this will tell you how old you are, if you remember that movie. The Never-Ending Story was a a book written by Michael Endy, who was a German kind of surrealist author. And I found this beautiful hardback version of it there. You'll notice that it is printed in two colors, in green and red, and if you watch the movie, you'll understand why. It's got these beautiful, every chapter begins with a different letter of the alphabet, 26 chapters sequentially, with the big, it's just, just stunning. Even on the first page, and again, if you've seen the movie, you'll know, the, uh, the piece is written backwards, which is very exciting. This is one of my, my fine treasures, and that got me obsessed with Michael Endy, and he's, it's hard to find his stuff, but they also had Mirror in the Mirror, which is surrealist short stories by Michael Endy, which I obsessed over. And, and uh, I remember the one day I went to Jolkins, I was in Bible college, I had no money, um, but I went anyways, because that's what I did. Music and books. So I went into the bookstore and I looked, and I was looking around, looking around, and I heard the door ring, and I looked over to see who came in. It was a person with an armload of books. I'm like, oh. <laughs> First crack, right? And it was there, in that stack of books, I looked and I was just starting to read Douglas Copeland at the time. If you know, he was, he's the person that coined the term Generation X. And I was a college student in the middle of Generation X and his latest book was in that stack, Polaroids from the Dead, which is a fine book if you ever want to read it. I obsessed, I love finding treasures in secondhand bookstores. Um, I know where the secondhand bookstores are all over Ontario. I know if I go to Kingston, where to go? I go to Barrie, it's Rivendell. Um, they're, some of them are closing. You have to keep your eyes open. But if you look, you can find them. And I don't know what your treasure is. Maybe you're an antique store shopper that just loves to find... Maybe you're collecting a certain sort of, I don't know, porcelain or, or jewelry or figurines, precious moments figurines. Remember you used to collect those people? If you used to collect those, Nathan used to break them. (laughs) Sorry, I had to. Um, We're continuing our series on the parables of the kingdom, and these are the final two short stories. Last week we looked at the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast, and I brought in some bread that I baked. And uh, they were twin parables because they say the same point in a slightly different way. In the same way, the two parables this morning are twin parables. They say the same thing in a slightly different way. 
It's the parable of the treasure and the parable of the pearl. So let's hear them. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's been, that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, I understand the excitement of finding treasure. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy that field. That's a bit of a slimy move, eh? And people wonder if that's an ethical thing to do or not, but whether it's ethical or not, that's not the point of the parable. He sold everything he had to buy that field because he knew the treasure that was in it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything that he owned and bought it. I'm going to read them one more time because I want them to sink in and they're short enough to do that. Just, just imagine Jesus with a bunch of people around him just sharing this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. I'm going to share with you this morning the two main points that those parables teach us. They're very obvious. I'm not stretching. The two main points that these parables teach us, and then I'm going to offer a bit of a psychological perspective on what it means for us and how we can, um, how we can live according to these parables. You'll see what I mean when I get there. But for now, the first point is this. The kingdom of heaven is insanely valuable. It is even more valuable than my Michael Endy collection. The kingdom of heaven is so valuable that people sell everything they have to obtain it. And you know, finding treasure in a field isn't unheard of in the ancient world. I have a picture I wanted to show you. Um, that is, uh, was created sometime in the first century out of uh, copper, and that's why it's patinaed like that with a little bit of tin. The name of it is 3Q15. Three means it's the third cave. Q means Qumran. And one five means it's the 15th scroll that was discovered. So when archaeologists were digging through this place called Qumran, they, in the third cave that they went into, they found a bunch of scrolls. And the 15th scroll they found was this. It's a treasure scroll. Uh, it was, uh, unlike most of the scrolls that were written on papyrus, this one was written on copper. It was actually pounded in with a chisel and a hammer, the Hebrew characters that you see on there. So when they found it, it was this thick roll of copper, and they couldn't unroll it without cracking it. So uh, I believe it was back in the 50s, they actually cut it into 23 strips. And that's one of the strips. So they could translate it and read it. And of course, it, it was so strange because all the papyri they were discovering, were, they were all written on papyri, which is uh, plants that are kind of pounded together and it was written like that. All of a sudden they find a scroll that's made out of copper. This must be something special. So they eagerly started translating it. And when they translated it, they realized that it was a list that referred to 64 locations where treasure was hidden. I'm going to read to you just a couple verses from, the, from 3Q15. This is how it starts. 
in the ruin, this sounds like a movie, in the ruin that is in the valley of Achor, under the steps with the entrance to the east, a distance of 40 cubits, a strong box of silver and its vessels with a weight of 17 talents. Or how about this one? This one's a little more obscure. In the salt pit that is under the steps, 41 talents of silver. In the cave of the old washer's chamber on the third terrace, 65 ingots of gold. And it goes on like this. There's 64 locations where treasure is hidden. And they actually totaled up the value of the treasure hidden, and it numbers in the millions. That's, and so we're, here's the bad thing is it's all gone. The, the treasure, you can't, you can't take this scroll and hunt for it today. What, they, what likely happened was when the Romans were coming in to take over Israel, the Jewish people hid their treasures to try to hide it from the Romans so they could get it later. And so they, they made this special scroll written in Hebrew, tucked it away, and they hid all this treasure all over the place. Unfortunately, it is not there. Although it would still make a great movie, I think. So hiding stuff away, tucking it away, is not an unheard of thing in the ancient world. And Jesus said, a man who was thinking of buying a field when walking through the field stumbled across something that was incredibly valuable. <laughs> Before I moved here, I was in Petrolia. It's like a farmer bought a field and found a little puddle of black crude lying on it. And so he sold everything he had to buy that field and put an oil well on it. Uh, it was incredibly valuable. So he sold everything he had to have it. So I wanted to think about what makes something valuable what, what do we consider valuable today? And my obvious frame of reference is books because you know that's, that's what I love. The first thing that makes something valuable is age, right? If something is older, it's typically more valuable. I, have, I brought my oldest book to show you. This book is called Thoughts on Family Worship. The hardback cover is embossed. It's gold-plated. And if you open it up carefully... You'll see that the copyright date is entered according to the Act of Congress in the year 1847. So this book was manufactured in 1847, and it was written by uh, J. W. James W. Alexander. It's called Thoughts on Family Worship. Has anyone heard of James W. Alexander? That's why this is worth about five bucks. <laughs> because even though it's old, and even though it's pretty, no, he didn't make a name for himself. So one of the things that makes something valuable is its age. Another thing that makes it valuable is, is the author. If it's a famous author, then it's more valuable than others. Rarity matters. If there's only 200 copies of something printed and you get it later, then, uh, then it's typically worth more. I learned this the hard way. One of my, one of my treasures, I, I, I have Spider-Man comics from, from college. And Amazing Spider-Man number 400 was the death of Aunt May. And in the death of Aunt May, they produced a variant cover that is uh, gray, and it's got a tombstone cut out of the front of it for the death of Aunt May. I bought that. I, didn't, I bought a copy that I didn't even read. I tucked it in a bag with a box, sealed it up. I thought, this is going to be worth something someday. The problem was they printed like a billion of them because everyone wanted them. So it's worth about $12 today. I spent $7 to buy it. So that's a pretty good return on investment. Um, 
rarity, how rare it is. And in fact, it's not a good return on an investment because I decided something a little while ago. I have this box of Spider-Man comics that I carefully collected and sealed up and everything. And I thought to myself, I could try to sell these for a little bit of money or I could let my kids enjoy them. And I thought, I'm gonna let my kids enjoy them. So I brought them out and my kids have been reading them voraciously ever since. So they are no longer in fine condition or near fine condition or yeah, <laughs> you feel me, right? But uh, the condition of something matters. Let's think about the kingdom of God for a second. The kingdom of God, how old is it? Well, it was inaugurated when Jesus walked the earth and said the kingdom of God is at hand, but it was part of God's plan for human flourishing from the beginning of time. God always planned to be the king of the kingdom, and we were to find our place in his kingdom. This is an old thing we're considering. Well, what about the author? Well, the author is God himself. It's the king. I've been, I've been just finishing up a paper, and I read this beautiful quote from Frank Macchia. He said, Christ is the king, and the spirit is the presence of the kingdom in this world. Christ, God, is the king. He is the author of this. How rare is the kingdom of God? Well, it's certainly one of a kind. There's lots of kingdoms of this world, but there's only one kingdom of God. There's many churches. There's many people reflecting the kingdom, but there's only one kingdom of God that every believer throughout time belongs to. And when you talk about the condition of the kingdom of God, it gets even more interesting because typically in our world, when things get older, they get, uh, they suffer entropy. They break down. I learned this the hard way yesterday. I was bringing the frame of the trampoline that my kids jumped on all summer into the shed in the backyard. And so I had all the metal feet for the shed. I was holding them like this and I needed to get uh, between the snowblower and the door to get outside. So I turned around this way and tried to walk through the door and the muscle in my back just said, nope. And I stood there, I, I dropped the things. I kind of leaned on them. I stood and I waited and I'm like, okay, this is gonna get better. Nope, it's not getting better. I tried to stretch. Nope, it's not getting better. And I eventually just did the whole thing left-handed and, and wheezed all night. And uh, yeah, it's still there. These bodies break down. Things break down over time. They wear out. But the kingdom of God is really strange in that the goal of the kingdom of God is in the future. If we, if we want to talk about what would be the pristine, perfect condition of the kingdom of God, it's yet to come. We're awaiting it. The kingdom of God is here among us because Jesus is here among us. He's here present and he is guiding us in our lives. He is drawing us closer to him. He's, he's moving us towards an end that's better than anything that came before. The kingdom of God is incredibly valuable. But here's the other part. That means that the kingdom of God is incredibly costly. And if you look at both of those people, in both of those parables, whether it's the treasure in the field or whether it's the pearl of great price, in both cases, the person that found it sold everything he had to obtain it. That gives you an idea of the value of the cost of the kingdom. So I got thinking about investing for your 
for curiosity's sake. In December of 1980, when many of you were not yet born, in December, some of you, in December of 1980, a computer company by the name of Apple had their first public offering, and you could buy shares in it. If you bought $1,000 worth of shares in Apple, you'd have just over half a million dollars today. It skyrocketed that much. But that's 38 years. Consider, what were you doing in May 1997? I was planning a wedding. In fact, I was counting it down. In fact, if you were to look at my wall, I had a calendar with marking off the days with X's and they were all numbered so I could tell you exactly how many days. That's what I was doing. But if in those years I was to scrape $1,000 to invest in this company called Amazon that was selling stuff, then 21 years later today, it would be worth 1.36 million. 1,000 to 1.3. Or how about this for some of you younger folk? In 2007, that was the year just before I came here. In 2007, Netflix started doing this crazy thing. They started streaming their shows on the internet. Before then, if you had a Netflix membership, they sent you DVDs in the mail. Does anyone remember that? You'd sign, you'd, you'd send, they'd send you DVDs in the mail and you'd send them back and forth. Well, they started streaming. If you invested $1,000 in Netflix in uh, 2007, you'd have about $108,000 today. That's just 11 years later. But the problem with all these examples is it's all hindsight. And you have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, you could have invested in Zellers or Sears, or MySpace, or pick your, there's lots of places you could have invested. So investors will tell you, and I talk like I'm an expert, I'm so not, don't take this as, as financial advice, but experts will tell you that when you invest, you to be safe, you need to diversify your investments, right? You don't put it all in one thing. You don't sell everything you have to buy one stock and put all your faith in one thing because it's just foolhardy, it's reckless. But what are the people in these parables do. They sell everything they have and invest their entire lives in one thing. They do the opposite of what you're supposed to do in investing. And I think sometimes this urge to diversify, to, um, to spread ourselves thin, even takes its toll in our spiritual lives. Josh, I'm so thankful that you were obedient and spoke out in the service today because that just it, you preached this point already <laughs> through the Spirit. It was beautiful. We have about 112 hours a week after we sleep. That's if you sleep eight hours a night. How many, okay, I like doing polls. How many sleep less than eight hours a night? How many sleep more than eight hours a night? Okay, we're, well, a few, okay. So if you sleep eight hours a night, you have 112 hours in a week. What do you do with those 112 hours? Where do you invest them? You work. So say you work 40 hours a week. What does that leave you? Can anyone do math? What's that? 72? 72 hours. Well, you have to eat. And you have to do other things. You have to get ready. I, I, you don't think I wake up in the morning looking like this, do you? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but what do we do with the time that we have? What do we do with those 112 hours? Where do we invest them? That's an incredible amount of time. 
to spend, to invest. The people in these parables sold everything they had to invest their lives in the treasure in the field, of, in the pearl of great price, in the kingdom of God. What do we do with our lives? Where do we invest? Because the kingdom of God is costly. I came across, uh, there's a publisher, uh, book publisher, back to books again, I'm sorry, Wiffenstock, and they posted this picture on their Facebook page uh, last, yesterday, and I laughed really hard. I don't know if you know, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, basically said in that book, The Cost of Discipleship, that when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die, and he died in a concentration camp uh, before the end of the war. Um, a very serious person. And someone took a picture that it's only $16. So anyways, I, I chuckled at the contrast. But the kingdom of God is so valuable, it demands our whole life. That's why uh, if you were around religious circles in the 80s and 90s, even before, a little after, depends on where you were, um, we would have these calls for salvation for people who wanted to come to Jesus. But you would, say like, you would say it like this, with every head bowed and every eye closed. I still remember the script. To, and it, it played its part in its dying day. But with every head bowed and with every eye closed, to respect the privacy of the people around you, if you think God is calling you to Him, then would you slip up a hand? No one's looking at you. No one's seeing it. And that's what we'd say. Jesus... <laughs> The kingdom of God demands our lives. It demands our all. It's costly. It's free. All we have to do is accept it. But once we're launched into that kingdom, Jesus calls for all of us. This doesn't mean that we become obsessive people with no lives, no hobbies, no friends, no family, and just focus single-mindedly only on going to church. Because, in fact, those people who pursue the kingdom of God will often find out that all the other things of value in their life receive a deeper value once they're put in their place. Once they cease to become idols that we pursue apart from God, they, they all of a sudden become something valuable, submitted to God. Um, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first his kingdom. Right? That's what we're talking about, the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. He's talking about all the necessities of life, the things that we worry about. All these things will be given to you as well. It's an issue of what are we focusing on? What's valuable to us? And so those were the first two points. And those were the plain points of the parable. The first point is this. The kingdom of God is incredibly valuable. The second point is this. The kingdom of God is incredibly costly. It costs us our whole lives of commitment. So you might well ask, and here's where the psychological perspective come in, comes in. You might say, I just don't feel like the kingdom of heaven is that valuable. I mean, if you're a Christian, you know in your mind that the kingdom of heaven is valuable. No one would disagree with that. It's, it's logical. But when it comes to feeling it, when it comes to engaging in the kingdom, when it comes to serving, it doesn't excite us the same. I was thinking about the things that excite me. Books, 
Duh. Reading, writing, biking, hunting, camping, woodworking, watching hockey, spending time with my wife, playing games with my kids, playing music, all these things that excite me. And I got thinking, does the kingdom of heaven excite me in the same way? What things do you value? How does that compare in your heart, not your mind, but in your heart, to the value of the kingdom of God? Well, I have a couple, couple ways to process this. I think this is important. I'm going to use an example from marriage counseling, and then I'm going to read a little book, a bit from one of the best books on the Christian life that exists, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. A regular complaint in marriage counseling is a couple shows up and they say, you know what, we just don't feel that fire anymore. We've lost the passion. It's just not there anymore. And often by the time that people are willing to admit this in a counseling situation, um, this has gone on for years and years and years. And what's happened is all those little things that used to add value to a relationship have kind of faded into the background. Well, all those little things that they used to do for each other, like... Uh, um, giving their spouse a good night kiss or going out for dinner or all those, all those little things that add value to a marriage have just kind of fallen apart. The passion's not there. Can someone, can, can you fix this for me, pastor? What do you say to people like that? Here's, here's the route I take. I encourage people to act towards their spouse as if the fire was still there. Do those things as if you felt that way and see what happens. Because feelings are incredibly fickle. Feelings come and go. And we can't tell ourselves what to feel directly. You can't tell yourself, I'm going to love God and feel it to the depth of my being. Yes, it doesn't work that way. But what we can control is our actions. And you'll find that when you start doing those little things that, that, that encourage the loving relationship between you and your spouse, when you start doing those things, even if you don't feel the love that you used to feel, over time, the feelings will return. His feelings will come back. That's how they work. It sounds almost, um, almost crass on the surface. What I'm essentially saying is pretend you still love him and act like it. Pretend you still love her and fake it till you make it. That was one of my points. Yes. You too are in touch with God. No. Uh, exactly. Fake it till you make it because the feelings come, the feelings go. But as you do those things, your feelings tend to fall in line. I wanted to read a little bit from Mere Christianity. I think makes the point very clearly because C.S. Lewis had a great way with words. Talking about acting as if you're a Christian even if you don't feel like being a Christian. What is the good of pretending to be what you're not? Well, even on the human level, you know, there are two kinds of pretending. There's the bad kind, where the pretense is there instead of the real thing. As when a man pretends he's going to help you instead of really helping you. But there's also the good kind, where the pretense leads to the real thing. When you're not feeling particularly friendly, but you know you ought to be, the best thing you can do very often is to put on a friendly manner 
and behave as if you were a nicer person than you really are. <laughs> no one said amen, but everyone laughed. That's great. And in a few minutes, as we have all noticed, you will be really feeling friendlier than you were. Very often, the only way to get a quality and to get a quality in reality is to start behaving as if you had it already. That's why children's games are so important. They're always pretending to be grown-ups, playing soldiers, playing shop, but all the time they're hardening their muscles and sharpening their wits so that the pretense of being grown-up leads them to grow up in reality. Now, the moment you realize, here I am dressing up like Christ, it's extremely likely that you will at once in some way see that um, you could make that more of a reality. You will find several things going on in your mind which would not be going on there if you really were a son of God. Well, stop them. Or you may realize that instead of saying your prayers, you ought to be downstairs writing a letter or helping your wife wash up. This was written in the mid-1900s. My pardons. Well, go ahead and do it. You see what's happening. Christ himself, the son of God, is actually at your side turning pretense into a reality. So I took a shot in the dark, and I'm guessing that there are things in our lives that we feel more passionate about than God. Not in our heads. In our heads, we know that God is the most valuable. In our hearts, in our actions, there are other things that take that place. I know that's the constant temptation for all human beings, myself included. So I want to urge you, if you read the parable of the pearl, the parable of the treasure, and you just don't feel that it's a treasure, start behaving as though it were and see what happens. Not only is there a psychological benefit that fake it till you make it, it will eventually fall into place. But when it comes to God, he is right there with you, helping you. When, uh, we're going to close by singing an older song called Draw Me Close. And it has some very intense words about being drawn close to God. And it's one of those songs that some days I don't feel like singing it. And other days I do. And I don't know where you're at right now. But as we close and worship with this song, I invite you to sing it as if you believed it. And see what God might do. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for being with us in our weakness. Thank you for not abandoning us to our sin and our failure, but always coming alongside us and with forgiveness to spare. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to desire the kingdom like the pearl of great price, like the treasure hidden in a field that it is. I pray, Lord, that even in those times when we don't feel it, that you would motivate us to maybe open our Bible and read, for, read from your word or take a moment to lift up our, our, our situation to you in prayer or, or visit that person from the church that we know is lonely or, or come to a worship service when you would really rather stay home. Lord, I pray that you'd help us in these things because we're weak and we need you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.